Live export is a difficult subject. Some listeners may find this challenging. I'm Colin Klupik. This is 47 Degrees. Let me ask you a stupid question. When you buy something online and you see a shipping cost, do you think about an actual ship? You'd be surprised just how much of your life depends on ships hauling cargo around the world, just so that you can live the life that you're accustomed to. The answer to how much is almost all of it. To be honest, it's something I had to spend a bit of time thinking about again myself. Without ships and the seafarers who drive them, we're in all sorts of trouble. But who are the people that make these giant vessels successfully complete their voyages? If you've ever seen one come into port, you would have noticed a distinct lack of people operating them. Sure, you might see a few people wandering around on deck, but there are less than you might imagine. It's why they are often referred to as the invisible workforce. Yet we are so dependent on them. The tragic part of this industry is that it can be a lot like the Wild West. Conditions have been improving, although there's a long way to go. Despite the tragic animal welfare issues, Lynn made it quite clear that she enjoyed the scale and adventure of shipping. But it's actually a really tough gig for many seafarers. In this episode, I also talk with Gary Dodd from the Mission to Seafarers in Newcastle, Australia, and Dean Summers, the International Transport Federation National Coordinator for the Flag of Convenience campaign in Australia, to try and understand just how grateful we should be for seafarers. But first, I talk to Lynn about why she's passionate about the welfare of seafarers. You were mentioning before that... uh, Life at sea can sometimes be quite good. However, there are obviously times when it's not so great, and seafarer welfare is something that you've become quite uh, aware of and quite passionate about talking about. Why is that? I think I'm passionate about it because a lot of these guys are from um, countries that make them less likely to speak up for themselves, and they're, they're a little bit subservient to try not to be insulting to them and um and that the whole trade in general is is essentially invisible to the majority of the population in the world um rose george writes a book called 97 percent of everything and what the title means is that 97 percent of everything in our lives that we touch that we use to build a house that we have in our our homes that we consume is literally shipped from one country to another. And so when you're paying shipping or postage and handling when you do your online um, orders at night, that shipping really means a ship. And when you pay the difference between, you know, standard or priority or premium, um, what that also often means is you get the, by paying extra, the cargo that you're getting put on a ship is going to be put into a safer area of the ship so it's less likely to be in a container that's going to wash off the edge. (laughs) As has recently happened. Exactly. (laughs) So yeah. So um, and ironically, that ship was called the Efficiency, and um, yeah, which I thought was a beautiful little twist. Um, Yeah, and they're probably still picking up, you know, bumper bars of cars off the side of the the beach and all the all the stuff that that came off her. So um, so the outer, the upper and outermost containers are most likely to fall into the ocean during rough weather. So did you ever sail on ships where there were heavy restrictions on how the crew could move about in terms of when they got to port, could they leave the ship, did they have to stay on the ship? Can you talk me through that? So um, to preface that, a lot of the crew that I worked with did 10-month uh, contracts. and with On the ship for 10 months? On the ship for 10 months. So they climb the gangway and that's them there for 10 months. 
and um, and apart from coming down onto the wharf to actually um, count sheep or you know push sheep onto trucks and you know manage the cargo, they rarely got more than a hundred meters away from the ship, and um, and depending on the nationality and the flight risk, for want of a better word, that the the company and the ship or the or the country that they were at um, held for these people or their nationalities depended on whether they got shore leave or not. Um, interestingly, they they liked coming to Australia because they thought Australia was a nice, clean place, but they thought Australia was usually pretty boring because <laughs> by the time they ever got shore leave, the sh- everything was shut. Because <laughs> right. nothing's open after 5 o'clock in Australia. <laughs> Whereas you go to the Middle East or India or Pakistan or the Philippines and they've all got, you know, night markets that go till, mm. you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night. So, you know, you could wander around the street and see a lot more colourful stuff than just walking through a mall in, you know, Fremantle or um, – and there's no malls in Portland um, – so what a lot of these guys would do um, is some of the ports had uh, the missions, the seafarer missions that mm-hmm. um, you've, you've spoken about, and, um, and they would go to those. That, that would be their only recreational outlet. And at one stage, I, um, I think I've told you this before, but I um, had a captain that asked me one day, he pulled me aside, he goes, Lynn, have you been teaching some of the crew English? And I'm like, yeah. And... Um, and he goes, would you mind not doing that anymore? And I'm like, yeah, sure, why? And um, and I'm thinking, you know, they love learning, you know, a couple of words of English a day and, and in return they would teach me their language and so we could communicate and it would be a nice little social interaction, et cetera. And it turned out that they were jumping ship. And, um, oh, no. And I had to explain to the captain, they're not asking me where is the, <laughs> the train station, you know. We're using different words. So um, it was usually, you know, things that they'd, seen or heard on a, a movie the night before and they'd just written it down going, oh, we'll check with the doc, you know, she'll tell us, you know, mm. what that, how to use that word. Um, so, yeah, so it was a bit sad that they, they didn't get um, time away from the ship and they sort of just hung with their own, well, with the crew. Um, they didn't have an option. But they're away for a long time. There's, there's very little um, Open communication, external communication on the live spot, on the livestock ships that I sailed on, for the crew. That's not exorbitantly expensive. So we've got satellite phones, but back then I think they were nine dollars a minute, which for someone who's making maybe twenty five dollars a day, um, is an expensive phone call back yeah. home. And so they they rarely use them. And um, some ships would allow you to put a um, an email onto a USB. And they would send it through wow. under somebody else. Somebody else would send it. You didn't even get to sit there and type it out in, in their keyboard. Wow! So, so it was quite controlled, and and that meant that whoever's on the bridge is bored, and they can just read your emails, and mm. you know, that's almost unthinkable today. Well, that is today. Oh dear! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is at sea. So, um, so you know, I've had people um, asking me about uh, Faisal Ullah, the guy that um, filmed uh, the Awasi footage that's been on TV recently, and they're like, you know, can you get a message to him? And I'm like, well, yeah, I've tried, and I've, I've sent the email, and um, well, what did he say? And I'm like, I haven't heard back. And they're like, oh, you know, is there an issue? And I'm like. Yeah, he's at sea. Yeah, it's a ship. <laughs> <laughs> he's in the middle of an ocean. Yeah. And um, they're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, yeah. Well, again, there's that public perception, isn't it, that um, they'll be okay. Their job is just like mine. Well, so they're in shipping, but it's maybe it's a little bit different. Uh, th- there should just be the internet. You know, they'll just be able to 
look on their phone and there'll be an instant message there or something. There's a real disconnect there between people's perception of what what they think it is and what what it actually is. And and being a um, a large animal vet in Australia, it, it should just be accepted because I can drive 40 minutes out of Canberra and stay on a friend's farm and people will go, she's dropped off the face of the earth because <laughs> my phone won't work, my internet won't work. You know, I've got to hook onto their landline if I um, want to communicate with anyone. And, um, and, you know, people will go, we've been trying to get hold of you for three days. And I'm like, yeah, I was you know, just outside of the nation's capital. But communication for these for these people really is an issue. The, one of the things I've heard is that the first thing they want to know about is what's going on with family. I mean, a 10-month contract. I can't imagine not seeing my family for 10 months because of a work contract. Uh, did you sometimes see the ill effects of that oh, when you were sailing? Yeah, you, you'd get guys that were tremendously depressed and lonely from that family interaction. You know, they had people around them, but, you know, sometimes you can be as lonely surrounded by people who do nothing for you mm. than, um, than not. And a lot of times these people also came from areas that were volatile, for want of a better word, be it through um, war zone areas like upper Pakistan, northwest frontier, or um, environmentally volatile. So uh, Bangladesh is always flooded, you mm. know, um, cyclones and typhoons and monsoons going through the Philippines. So uh, volcanoes, you know, so they, they might get a snippet through some news and then they're like, what does that mean for my village? Is that near my village? Is that on my island? Is that – so as soon as we get phone range, these guys – all jump onto their phones and, you know, if, if you've got phone range, you can basically guarantee there's nothing happening on the ship except that everybody is, <laughs> is out on the edge somewhere trying to on – the, on the edge of the ship somewhere trying to get the best reception they can to catch up on the news at home. And, um, and I've sailed into the uh, Suez Canal in the past and as we entered the canal, everything was just going as normal and we get good range for about 24, 36 hours in the canal so people have a big catch-up there and it's it's considered like quite a social thing for the, the crew, the social time or opportunity. And um, and we sailed out and the, I was sailing with Pakistanis and they were, they were quite uh, morose as we sailed out and I've gone over to one guy and I'm like, what, what? What's going on? And they said, "Oh, we've had much trouble at home. You know, the government has um, has basically flattened eighty percent of our our village oh dear. with bombs." And I'm like, "Yeah, that's not good." And um, and then I see that the ship slowed down as we entered the Mediterranean out of the canal and dropped the gangway, and a little little boat came out, and one of the guys um, climbed down the gangway with his luggage and got on the ship and signed off, which means got off, and um, and I'm like, why is why is Bubba going off? You know, what's what's the deal there? That's like weird. I've never seen that. And um and the guys were just looking around, looking so dejected. And I said, what's happened? And they said, oh, they said it's horrible. You know, we, he's been told that his um his wife's had a heart attack, but in fact, his entire family were killed in the bombs. They're all in the in the house when the bombs hit, and um, they're all dead. And no one's had the heart to tell him. So um. So these guys are literally disconnected from what's happening in their world. And, um, and so this poor guy would have got home to, to that. So they, they come from a harsh environment. They work in a harsh environment, away from their families for a long period of time, get small fragments of news, sometimes good, sometimes tragic. It's an incredible life. Yeah, and, um, you know, they're not usually of 
a in a financial situation to go you know what I'm I'm going to insist that I get off at the next port and fly home because it's not a guarantee that the company will repatriate them and pay the multiple thousands of dollars to fly them back to wherever they are from wherever they are because mm. they could be in Russia when they get the information and need to get to the Philippines um so that could null and void their entire contract by paying for that airfare. So sometimes they've just got to sit it out. And I've, I've seen guys that, you know, we've almost had to lock in their cabin because they've just started to go stir crazy and start, you know, tearing things up and people have started to worry about them getting violent and hurting themselves or hurting each other. Um, one guy, I think he's, um, his wife went into labour early and had a premature baby. The baby was okay, the wife was okay, but he wasn't home. So he and, – and he just – he just flipped. He just wanted to be there, even though, you know, he knew the risk of being at sea, he could miss the, the birth, but it just wasn't working for him that day. And um, so you, you'd get events like that that happened not uncommonly. On the ship, doing your job and still lonely. Or perhaps you've just come back into an area of mobile service, looking forward to catching up with family, only to find out the tragic news awaits you. This prompted me to find out more about the Mission to Seafarers and what they do. In fact, long before this interview, I'd often gone past the local mission building in Newcastle and wondered what that was all about. Little did I know that it performs such a valuable service to so many seafarers. It's a fairly unassuming building down near the marina, kind of deco style. I meet with Reverend Gary Dodd, the Regional Director of the Mission to Seafarers for Australia and Papua New Guinea. Before we talk, he gives me a brief tour. It's a large hall with tables and chairs for people to have some downtime and maybe something to eat. He shows me a fridge full of what looks like takeaway meals and tells me that they give away about a hundred of these each week. The low wages that Lynn was just talking about don't buy much in this town and so the seafarers are grateful for this provision. There are also clothes on racks for those in need but my favourite thing is the beanie bin. Each seafarer gets a beanie that's been kindly donated. It's a simple gift but both Gary and Lynn assure me the beanie is highly treasured because it gets really cold on the ocean, and it's nice to have something warm in your head. I recall Lynn proudly modelling her beanie when I was there. The bank of internet-connected computers equipped with headsets reminds me that communication really is so important here. We take a seat in the chapel, which welcomes all people, regardless of who they are or where they come from. Gary, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, can you give us a brief idea of the the, the, the size, the scope, the the, uh, the the mission of the mission to seafarers? What's that all about? Essentially, it's to care for every seafarer in the world, regardless of who they are or what their faith background is or what their nationality is. Our mission is to love and to care for some of the most marginalised people on the planet, and so that's what we do. When you say marginalised, they're, they're workers in an industry, but how do you mean marginalised? What, what does that mean? Marginalised at a few different levels. Um, seafarers are often referred to as the invisible workforce. And yes, because, I've come across that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, and that's because uh, nobody thinks about how our smartphone or how our coffee yeah. came to us. We just went to a shop one day and we bought it, right? Yeah, sure. So, so they're invisible in that way. They're marginalised because even when they, they do get off the vessel uh, and do spend some time in, in uh, society, often they're, because they're foreigners and they don't speak our language and they don't look right and they don't have enough money and, and so they're marginalised socially 
as well in, when they are on land. And they're marginalised uh, within their own society as well. So can you imagine being away from your home for an entire year? And no, I can't. <laughs> and so everything that happens in that year. Yeah. So eventually you come home and you have to start up again. You yeah. have to find out what it's like being for your child who wasn't even born when you left sure. but, but now is, is approaching their first birthday. Or, and then you stop working um, so there's no money coming in. So the pressure is to go back to sea for yeah. another 12-month contract. So we call them invisible or they're known as invisible. Do they feel invisible? Is, is that a fair description as far as they're concerned? Absolutely, yeah, because uh, when they get off the vessel uh, and go, even if it's for just a couple of hours, um, and go into the local shopping centre, none, none of the Australians greet them with open arms and welcome them. They're not seen as tourists. They're not seen as these valuable commodities that, that will have blessed us with um, all of the things we take for granted. So they're invisible there. And then when they go home back into their village... Uh, they're invisible for a time because their wives have mm. to organise the whole household without them. So when they come back in, there's a huge adjustment that, that needs to happen. Yeah. And then, of course, there's no money coming in, so there's pressure to go back out again to do something. And if yeah. it's back to sea, it's easy for three or four years to come and go. And all of a sudden, they are completely isolated from their own children and, and their, their social networks back at home. So if they're invisible, it would be fair to say, or if we perceive them as being invisible, one, another way to say that would be that we just entirely take them for granted. Mm, absolutely. However, on the flip side, I can't quite get my head around how to not take them for granted. Does that mean that when I go and buy my coffee at Woolworths, as, a, as in a bag of coffee that's come from the other side of the world, does that mean that I just pause and take a moment for the person who, who brought this coffee or this product to my country? I mean, that's a fairly distant way for me to try and not take them for granted. How, yeah. What's a practical way that someone can actually do anything about this? Is, is it at all possible? Well, I'm proud that Australia has signed up to the Maritime Labor Convention in 2006. And that's the way, as, as a nation, as, as the politicians of this country have right. said, um, the office of a seafarer is valuable and important and shouldn't be taken for granted so that they should have minimum hours of work and and wage and, and conditions and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's one good thing. So, so as, a, as a country, we are good. Um, but as an individual, so, so when I have my cup of coffee at, at a cafe somewhere, um, yeah, just thinking to myself, well, so much of the lifestyle that I have here in Australia is dependent on seafarers taking our natural resources away and, and earning money yeah. and, and then bringing all of the great things that I, as somebody in 2018, want to be able to use. Like, I want my smartphone. I want to be able to be connected. Um, so I think it is about seeing that stranger in the marketplace who is a seafarer, who is disconnected to um, our culture and our society, but their own as well, and, and making that effort, like being a part of their world, even if it is just for a minute. So the world relies on seafarers. I mean, if you think about what moves around the world, well, almost everything, except for the, the I guess, the smaller amount of stuff that moves by air freight has, has come from, from the, the work of seafarers. 
bearing that in mind, the, the, the conditions must vary enormously. I mean, you know, going to the office every day in your stable climate and stable environment is not like stepping onto a ship that's heaving from side to side yes. and travelling through potentially adverse weather conditions and all the rest of it that gets thrown in. What, what kind of conditions do these people experience? And, and how, do, how do you make someone who isn't a seafarer, doesn't really understand how shipping works and doesn't really think about it, yep. how do we begin to explain to the average person what these people go through? It's a really good question and it's difficult because it's a, such a broad industry. So on end, there are seafarers that are three weeks on, three weeks off, getting a huge income, fantastic conditions, um, every benefit you could imagine. But then down the other end of the spectrum, there are those seafarers who are just being abused, who aren't getting paid, who aren't being fed properly, who really are, it's a form of slavery for them. So it's an enormous industry. So when we talk about seafarers, um, which ones are we talking about? Are we talking about those Australian seafarers on those oil rigs um, or, or piloting in vessels into our harbours? Or are we talking about those, you know, Burmese seafarers? Yeah, that, well, that's an interesting question as well because that's something I hadn't considered. So the three weeks on, three weeks off, they're getting a great deal, they're getting great wages. Who are they? <laughs> Well, uh, it's one of the reasons why there's not many Australian seafarers. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but also around the world, though. Like, I mean, we, we just think about our island. Um, but, you know, in Europe, there are some of those seafarers out there for whom, you know, it might just be a four-day journey from port A to port B and, or maybe three or four drop-off points in between and then back again. Um, but for us, of course, all of the seafarers coming here have had to have had at least a two-week journey, if not more. It'd be just purely because of our distance from the rest of the world. Exactly right. Yeah. Wow, OK. So the conditions for the people who, or for the seafarers who don't get the great deal, yes. <laughs> what kind of conditions are we talking... Uh, so, for example, when, when a seafarer is off-duty, do they go into a, like a, a, a cabin that's tiny? Is it metal walled? Is it noisy? Is it, you know, is it hot and dirty in, in, the, in the Middle East? What, what, what kind of variations are we talking about? Yeah, um, all that you've just described. Uh, but then even within a ship it can be, or a vessel, there can be great diversity. So, so what does an officer have compared to the oiler or, or the, the mess man? Yeah, sure. The, the lowest of the low in that, that pecking order? of a ship's crew. So I, I've been lucky enough to go on a vessel from Melbourne to Ley in Papua New Guinea. The condition of space that the officers had was vastly different and, and the type of food that the officers got was vastly okay. different to um, the, the humble sort of ordinary seafarer. So it is a, it's a hard question to answer because uh, there's just such diversity. But I guess the people that I see, the people, the seafarers that generally walk into a mission to seafarer centre are those that are there doing the hard yards because they're earning money for their families. Yeah. Not dissimilar to an Australian flying into out back Western Australia into those iron ore mines, you know, and, and spend six months trying to earn, earn their fortune before they come home again. It's, so these guys are leaving their family and friends for a year to try and earn the big bucks. Does it vary based on the industry? So is life on a container ship different to a coal ship, for example? Uh, no, it's, it's similar. Similar, um, you know, especially when you're at sea. So, like, if you're on a roll-on, roll-off vessel, so like a, a car-moving mm -hmm. vessel, um, 
you know, the, the product is stationary, but when you actually uh, come alongside and birth, well, you're just in and out, or, or at least contractors might be brought in to just drive cars. But then eight hours later, you're gone, okay. versus perhaps a grain vessel that might take three days to, yes. to load. Uh, so those seafarers then perhaps have the opportunity to stay um, ashore and to get off the vessel and have some, some chances to interact so we were talking uh, just a minute ago about, for example, seafarers around Europe that get a better deal or perhaps don't have to spend too much time at sea before they get a break as opposed to some of our uh, counterparts down here in the Australian mm. coastal waters. Is, are we describing here, particularly in our context, then a, what you could say is a, a truly international workforce? Is it really diverse actually within the seafarers on the ships as well? Or do, they, or do the ships tend to come with fairly uh, coherent kind of groups of, of seafarers or is it just whoever turns up that's who you who you're sailing with there are some vessels many vessels where the entire crew from captain right the way down is one nationality um, but the vast majority i would say would have at least captain and officers perhaps one nationality and then the seafarers another so if it's a Japanese-owned vessel, for example, um, there might be Japanese master and, and officers, but the crew um, might be uh, Chinese or, or um, Filipino. Is that usually based on cost? Yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. Right. So it's just entirely, a, as, in any, as in the way you would expect any other business to operate, they're keeping an extremely close eye on costs, mm. whatever works, minimum, minimum cost of, uh, required to run this ship from A to B to get, to get the cargo delivered. That's what we'll do. Yep. So when, when seafarers do actually have the chance to, uh, to come ashore, because off mic a few moments ago we were talking about the fact that some don't come offshore, mm. they, in fact the captains don't let them come offshore, uh, come onshore I should say, uh, because of, for whatever reason, most likely due to a turnaround time, when they do actually come in here uh, and, and talk to you, what, what kind of issues are presenting and, and what kind of things are they asking you for? Isolation is a big issue. So loneliness is, is a major concern. Uh, they long to be connected to their families and to society at large. So, so that is the thing that's most important for them. And we've done surveys as well, so we, we kind of know, mm. um, you know, empirically as, as well as just the, the work that happens day in, day out. So they want to, they want to uh, find out what's happening at home first and then they want to um, perhaps get some medicines or, or something, uh, some entertainment, um, so to kind of look after their body and their mind um, and then I guess the third thing they're after is just some luxury items, so maybe some chocolate or, <laughs> or something that, you know, just some comfort item just to take back on board. Sure. I would assume that sometimes uh, those those people seeking uh, an end to their loneliness, they'd, they'd be, uh, for example, the ones who are at sea for a long time, say more than nine months, maybe up to a year. Do, do you ever see really extreme cases? Before the Maritime Labor Convention came in, um, yes, I've had lots of conversations with seafarers and I'll say, well, you know, when was the last time you were at home? Oh, eight years ago. Eight years? Eight years. Uh, And I've heard stories from from other regions around the world where, you know, seafarers haven't left the vessel, you know, for for extraordinary amounts of time. Wow. Um, Technically, that can't happen anymore. Okay. So that's, so, an, that, that's due to the international standards that's, that have been implemented? Yeah. Okay. Mm. So in, an, in a situation then where you did have extreme cases, how, 
how able are you then to to intervene? I mean, are we talking about uh, bringing people back to their homeland, or are we talking about local hospitalisation? Are we talking about uh, them having to spend an extended stay here on land? Does it does it get to that point? Not really, um, because again, these poor seafarers are just a number, and and it's the cost. So. An owner would be reluctant to accommodate a seafarer here in Australia for six weeks just to reintegrate them back into society. You know, they would be kind of flown home and, and there may be something back in their hometown, home country. Um, so we don't, I don't see that happening much here, um, even for those seafarers that perhaps are airlifted off uh, a vessel to have some serious medical treatment looked after in, in a, an Australian hospital. Often they are sent home at the very first available moment. I've heard that conditions uh, on flags of convenience vessels can be particularly harsh given the the nature of the way the flags of convenience system works. What can you tell me about that? Again, that was a huge issue um, prior to the MLC coming into effect. Um, it still is different. Like if I go into a ship visit and I look up there and I see the flag is a flag of convenience vessel, uh, I can. I used to certainly be able to assume that the conditions on board that vessel would be vastly different to um, other other flags, um, but because because Australia has signed up to the MLC and we are now um, a port state signatory. Um, the flag state that's brought the vessel to us uh, has to maintain certain sort of levels of, of um, things that are acceptable mm-hmm. for otherwise AMSA, the Australian Maritime Safety Authority, being the port state, can go on and arrest that vessel or prevent that vessel from ever coming back to Australia or getting things fixed before they're allowed to sail again. So we're in the port of Newcastle here. Yep. The ships that come in, are they, are they by and large flag of convenience vessels? How, is there any way that the average person standing on the side of the Hunter River can identify them and say, oh, look, there goes another one? <laughs> look, but, but what does it mean now? So, so if the flag is, is a, a Cyprus flag or um, Panama, that's not necessarily going to say that the conditions on board that vessel are dreadful. So maybe 10 years ago, you'd say, yep, yeah, you know, statistically that they probably are, those seafarers probably are having a worse time than, than if it was an Australian flagged and registered vessel. Um, but I don't know if you can say that as much anymore. So conditions are on the improve, would you say? Yeah, slowly but surely. And that is, is that based on a, a combination of awareness of seafarer issues and the politics behind that? It's based on the strength of AMSA. So Australia is one of the, or the strictest country in the world. So since the uh, MLC has come into effect in this country, the average age of a vessel has decreased, I think it's like three or four years. So before we would get vessels that were, you know, 10 years old, now we get vessels that are like five, six, seven years old. So okay, because I have noticed that some of the ships coming in, they look like they've... They've done their work. <laughs> yeah, and that's because owners don't want to have uh, their vessels arrested. Um, there, there's an international sort of uh, name and shame policy. Oh, so, okay. So, you know, the captain or the owners, or the, the company, um, 
everybody knows that that they're a, a troublesome. So a, fr- and, a fresh coat of paint goes a long way, doesn't? Well, <laughs> yes, but the, the fear of being made uh, in getting in trouble from the Australian government. But so that's good for all seafarers coming to Australia. What, what happens? Where, where are those other old vessels? Where are those vessels that are now 14, 15 years old? They're not coming to Australia, but they're going somewhere. That's, that's interesting because when you talk about an older vessel, you're talking about 14 or 15 years. I, when I look at some of these ships coming into port here, I don't know why, but I immediately think, oh, that, I guess that ship's maybe 30 or 40 years old. So they're actually a lot younger than, than you think. Is that right? Uh, look, it all depends on um, how well it's been maintained over its life. But, but the, the days of vessels being like 30-odd years old don't, aren't really there anymore because in those days there might have been a crew of um, you know 30 or 40 people and there, there would be um, boiler makers and, mm. and electricians and, and you know signal people like communications teams and, and more people there sort of chipping paint and rust and, and, and maintaining the crews now by and large are about 22 Okay. so it's a skeleton crew and, and they the interest isn't in maintaining or fixing or repairing. It's just, you know, working it as fast and as hard as they can um, before scrapping it and then getting a new new vessel. That's fascinating because the, the, one of the last things I wanted to ask you was uh, do you see automation changing the nature of seafaring in the future? Are we seeing any evidence of that? I mean, the, the fact that the crews are getting smaller, yes. the way you've just described it is, well, let's see what we can get out of this ship before the ship just isn't serviceable anymore but are we likely to see ships with even smaller numbers as as machinery and automation take over oh absolutely yeah okay so and i'm i would assume that that's just in terms of the 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 ships themselves being more computerized in the way that they run or are we talking about loading and unloading you were mentioning before that contractors then come in from onshore and then just and do that sort of work i think um both governments and the industry are keen for automated vessels and in some parts of the world, that's the, we've already got the legislation, everything's ready, set to go. It will just happen. In we're our not, lifetime, it will happen. We're not talking about driverless ships as, in the same way that we are driverless cars, are we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like autopilot. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> From one side of the world to the other. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> wow. that's, that's, and so they will just automatically come to a designated area for at Anchorage, um, and then you'll probably see, you know... A crew of, of half a dozen go on board, and and they're the ones that physically will be helping with ropes and all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, that that will become a reality. Wow, that's an incredible future, Gary. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. So clearly, seafarers can experience very tough conditions both at sea and just on the job generally. As Gary mentioned, conditions on ships can vary greatly and particularly on what are called flags of convenience ships. This was something that kept coming up as well. To find out a bit more about this, I spoke with Dean Summers, the International Transport Workers' Federation National Coordinator for the Flags of Convenience campaign in Australia. I caught up with Dean by cell phone between appointments, so the audio isn't great, but the message was clear. There are companies around the world taking advantage of shortcuts to minimise tax and find the cheapest crews. Sounds convenient, right? When you see footage um, of what goes on on live animal export ships, 
I think it's actually quite easy to forget that there are people on those ships. They don't just drive themselves. And there's an article on the ITF Global website that talks about this, the recently released footage, and that's uh, why we're talking what's happened in the media now in early 2018. And it mentions a Panamanian registered flag of convenience vessel. When I came across that, yeah. I thought, that just seems almost too convenient. Can you explain what that means? Well, uh, I'll just backtrack a little bit. My, uh, so I am the national coordinator for the ITF's Flag of Convenience campaign in Australia. The Flag of Convenience is a way of registering a ship uh, whereby the owners, we call them the beneficial owners, those people that benefit from the profits uh, of shipping in whatever guise it is, um, uh, is different than the flag of the ship. For example, if we've got an Australian ship owner, we would expect uh, that that Australian ship owner would register his ship in Australia, use Australian seafarers, adhere to Australian laws, uh, all legislation, including labour labor reg- uh, legislation um, and standards, safety standards, etc., on board the ship. Uh, we'd also expect that they paid Australian taxes and uh, everything else that goes with an Australian company. What the alternative is, and this was developed many years ago, probably more than 70 years ago, was that some flags, some countries have, in effect, uh, prostituted their flag and they will allow ship owners to come to their registry office and then they will sign their ships up um, under very, you know, uh, not much scrutiny, shall we say, uh, and then they can sail around the world under their flag. That means that all the responsibility comes back to that flag state and probably as I speak you'll talk about port state and flag state. Flag state is the country where the ship is registered uh, and port state is the port in which the ship is currently at. So flags convenience are responsible for more than half the world's fleet of ships and we see countries such as Panama, Liberia, now Mongolia and that really helps to explain just what a farce it is because Mongolia is a landlocked country and it's got its own shipping register. But essentially now it helps, well, it completely um, provides for tax evasion for ship owners that are paying tax. The other thing it does is allow them to get the cheapest uh, foreign crews that are uh, available around the world, and that changes from time to time because of geopolitical shifts, uh, and they can employ those seafarers on board their ship at absolute minimum rates. In fact, there is no minimum rate. So presumably you're not the only person who knows about this and, and people in Australia are obviously not the only people who know about this. How did this start and how does this just kind of keep going if, if people think it's so awful and if, if, it, if it is in fact a farce? Oh, well, because governments are very happy to accommodate the cheapest transport available when we have governments that have consistently failed us, um, us being you know, unions and, and Australian people uh, but it's not only Australia, it's every country in the world. Every national fleet, so, you know, Australia used to have a very proud national fleet, Australian seafarers working on the Australian coast. Um, every developed country has eroded those conditions and now have been replaced by flags of convenience. And there's two ways to look at it. One's the international fleet, so ships that are taking iron ore, coal, etc., to foreign markets. Um, and the other is our domestic market, whereby we're carrying our own goods around the country. That's a very big, um, very big market, and fuel is front and centre in that. And so that has been eroded so badly and supported so much by consecutive governments that Australians haven't been able to compete. Um, why? How can an Australian seafarer compete with the cheapest Filipino rates of pay? 
um, on a company with a company that doesn't pay any income tax or any company tax or anything else. Uh, they keep them to sea for much longer than they would from seafarers from a developing nation. So the differential between uh, national seafarers and the cheapest world's alternative under the flag of convenience system is pretty stark. So I would assume then that these flag of convenience vessels are then predominantly used for live animal export. Is that, would that be a, a, a fair assumption? Absolutely. There's only a few that I've come across that are national flag. And when it's national flag, it's some Middle Eastern um, country's national flag with very, uh, very low labour standards, any standards at all. How would you describe the conditions that seafarers actually go through, and, and particularly with, with the various industries? Like, is a, is a coal ship a better experience than a live a, uh, export ship? Is better than, a, say, uh, an LNG ship? Are there, are there varying differences? There are varying differences, and for a whole raft of reasons. Um, on a container ship, for example, so we all live in, uh, in you know, ports or around ports, I just have to say that seafarers are an invisible workforce. Nobody knows, nobody cares, but, you know, uh, everything that we consume, everything in our house, everything that we wear, all our car, every single car from now on, uh, is brought into this country by seafarers on ships. Everything, you know. Maybe it's a little bit caught in by plane as a tiny little bit of manufacturing here. But effectively, everything that we consume is brought in by ships, by seafarers. Uh, and that's the same for the entire world. The world's trade relies on a very small amount of uh, international seafarers doing this work. And yet nobody realises, nobody joins the dots. Nobody realises what life is like on a ship or how long those seafarers have to stay on board the ship. And when you come down to the different grades of ships, yes, there's very particular reasons why they're different. A container ship, now they're carrying more than 10,000 containers on one ship. Very, very large ships. Faster rates of discharge and load in ports like Sydney and uh, Melbourne and other, other ports around the world. And so those seafarers are getting less and less numbers because technology is taking place, they're working it harder and longer. So on a, the biggest container ship you've ever seen, either on TV or anywhere else, would be maybe 18 workers on it, maybe less. And there's constant pressure to have less and less people on those because it saves money. Something that also became apparent was that many seafarers not only endure terrible conditions, but are afraid to speak up about it. I asked Dean what happens to those people and what the ITF can do to help them. Do people just well, mysteriously they do it, they go overboard? Well, they do it in a number of ways. They do it in a number of ways. They know... All seafarers know who the ITF is. So the ITF is supported of international maritime uh, transport working unions. They know which countries are strong, which countries are weak. They know that Australia is strong despite this very targeted attack by governments on our unions for a very long time. And then they know that we can be effective. They know that they can give us their names, their contact details, their families can call us if there's problems because it doesn't go any further than us and we've got a very long and proud reputation of protecting their interests. So what they'll do is text or usually text or call and say, you know, I'm not getting paid. Can you come down and visit our ship? And and we go down on board those ships and we go through the wage records and we talk to the captains and we interrogate uh, people that may have done something wrong and we find out what the problems are all the time trying to not identify the seafarers that complain. That's very important to seafarers. And they know that if they cross the line, if the captain or the company uh, knows that they've complained to the ITF, then the, they can be blacklisted. That means I'll never get another job at sea. They tell all the other companies not to employ this bloke because he's a, he'll complain, he'll stand up for his rights, or he'll complain to the ITF. 
it can be much worse than that. We've seen cases um, where families have been brutalised and threatened. Uh, it just doesn't stop there. So, you know, we have to be very, very careful. And we have to know that there are consequences once that ship and those seafarers are over the horizon. All this was leading me to what seemed to be the inevitable question. Where to now for this industry? What's to become of the live animal export trade? Is it actually sustainable? And again, depending on where you stand, this is controversial. Forty Seven Degrees is independently produced by Colink Media. Interviews, narration, and production by Colin Klupik. Music licensed by Getty Images. To get in touch, send your emails to 47degrees at colinkmedia.com or to post your thoughts and join the conversation, visit facebook.com slash 47degreespodcast. podcast.